Well, good morning. <laughs> We're studying the book of Revelations, the first three chapters anyway. Uh, our main focus is on chapters two and three, the seven letters to the churches. Uh, so turn there with me. We are um, in the fourth letter written to a church in Thyatira. You remember, it was the Lord himself who wrote these letters to a real churches, actual church in Asia Minor around 93, 95 A.D., Today, modern-day Turkey. As we've been seeing over and over again, we'll see again today, the Lord wrote these specific letters based upon the church's circumstances and the church's needs. Tangible churches, historical churches, with real people, real problems, real persecution. And as with the rest of Scripture, the, the, message is, the messages are therefore set in a particular context and first must be stood within the original context, but then given the application or the message to the churches today in all ages. The Lord's message to the churches in Asia Minor we find in Revelation 2 and 3 transcends just Asia Minor and is for all ages of the church and all of church history. Each of these letters are marked out uh, a uniqueness of each church in that day as well. Not all churches are the same, right? Not all churches are, uh, uh, find themselves in the same cultural context, even finding themselves in different worship forms as we are outside over the past two weeks. And now, I don't know, for a couple more maybe, hopefully the Lord will, will give us nice weather. There are different doctrinal convictions and importance uh, in some of the churches, but all the churches of all ages of all times are called to follow the head of the church, to obey the head of the church. His name is Jesus, and to walk with him by his spirit and to respond to him as he calls each church in its particular context to obey him. It is Jesus who gave his life, who shed his blood for his bride. It is Jesus who is the only one who is worthy, chapter 5 of Revelation, to open up the scrolls to bring all of life to its culmination. It is Jesus, the one who was given this revelation by the Father to give to us. It is Revelation, this book, this apocalyptic, this, this unveiling book, is from and for and about the majesty and glory of Jesus, our warrior lamb king, who's coming again to reign and to rule. As I said last week, when the head of the church speaks, we ought to listen. We ought to listen. I'm interested in going back after these seven weeks and, and just really thinking through each letter and what, what, what really is applicable to us and how do we move forward. The church of Ephesus, Christ wrote to them and said that they were loyal. They were, they were doctrinally sound, but they had lost their first love. They were lacking in love. To the church of Smyrna, love, loyalty, and devotion was tested by fire and, and proven to be true. Third letter to the church of Pergamum. There was love and loyalty, but there were some who held to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, leading to sexual immorality and adultery. Up to this point, I want to recognize with you this morning that two out of the three churches and soon three out of the four churches, we get ready today, the problem that was happening in, what, to the church was not from outside the church. It was being corrupted from within the church. So many times we want to fight those outside the church. We're not dealing with those inside the church looking to corrupt its purity <coughs> and its gospel presence. It's also interesting to note, <coughs> excuse me, that as we go on in these letters, the progression of sin is getting worse and worse and worse. 
So let me read our scripture lesson as my brother Bob brings me my water. Thank you, sir. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 2, I'm sorry, (laughs) I'm looking at 3. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 through 29. Now hear the word, the infallible, authoritative, inspired word of God. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burning bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am the one who searches mind and heart, and I'll give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have authority, received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. Verse 29. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So what I want to do this morning, if you have your sheets, you'll see there's a a six-part or uh, uh, six-piece movement. I'm moving through this passage through six pieces, uh, three, uh, six headings, I should say. And you may be thinking, all right, six headings. I didn't bring lunch. It's okay. I just wanted to show you that I could do something more than just three points. Earn my money this week. Um, but we're actually going to move them quickly. But I, but I thought it was important to see each one of these movements in its, in its, in its separate place. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at six things. We're going to look at first who the author is. That's important. We see uh, the description of Christ. We'll look at the approval that he gave to the church. Uh, we look at the ailment, that in which he calls the church to repent. And then the announcement, there's this judgment that he will have upon uh, those in the church. The admonition to those who need to hold fast. And then finally the assurance. So that's where we're going to go. So let's first look at the author in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. This is Jesus talking. Like all the other letters, we're not sure who the angel is. It may be a, a courier of the letter. It could be the pastor elders. It could be the uh, the the. the a real spiritual angel, like a, like an overseer or a guardian angel. We're not sure, but we know that he was given uh, this 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 uh, opportunity to give this letter to the church in Thyatira, which is an interesting city. Um, we talk about each city, and it's important that we do, and you'll see why in a minute. Thyatira was the least important city of the seven churches in the seven cities. It 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 it. it 
it had this military outpost. It was about 40 or 50 miles from Pergamum. Um, you saw the pictures we showed a couple of weeks ago. It's about 40 or 45 miles uh, southeast of Pergamum. It was uh, a place where the military had set up their, 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 their guard. Uh, it was on a massive plane. And the reason why they did that is because if people wanted to attack Pergamum, which was the, the official, uh, um, it was the official um, city, it was the official capital of that region, they'd have to go through Thyatira to get to Pergamum. So this, this expendable army was put there, and throughout the centuries, many of, of the people that lived there, many of the armies that were placed there were overrun. It gave the chance for Pergamum to get ready for the oncoming enemies to enter the capital city in that region. So it was an expendable army. And one of the things uh, that we need to know about this city also is that the city uh, had a, a, a huge amount of commerce. Uh, there was, they made wool, linen, Leather work, bronze work, and especially purple dye was known in the city of Thyatira. And if you remember in Acts, um, Acts chapter 16, there was a seller of purple. Her name was Lydia. Uh, she was from Thyatira. She had moved to, to Philippi where she met the Apostle Paul, heard the gospel, and it said the Lord opened her heart. That's how the gospel happens. That's how salvation comes. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She may have been the first convert to Europe. Who knows? Maybe she went back to Thyatira and was uh, instrumental in starting that church there. We don't know. So it had a commerce. Second thing that we need to know about Thyatira is they had multiple trade guilds. In other words, labor unions that governed their, their life, their public life, their civic life. Each guild had its own patron deity. Each one had its own festivals and season celebrations. And oftentimes these, these worship times had involved um, sexual immorality. So if you're a believer and you're in Thyatira and you have all this going on within your culture, within your, within your, your, your city where you earn money and, and you need to partake in order to care for your family, you had a problem because you weren't partaking in that kind of worship. You were removed from the trade unions and therefore struggled to make ends meet. Third thing we need to know is that in Asia Minor, in Thyatira, there was Apollos. Apollos was a, a, a false god, was worshipped as one who was a guardian to the city. A guardian to the city. <clears throat> Apollos, a guardian to the city. Remember that. Lastly, what I want to tell you about this city, and you'll see all this come to fruition of why we're saying all this. There was a fortune-telling shrine in the city that brought lots of people there. It, it was called Sambath. It was an evil, powerful priestess where people would come to get knowledge and wisdom from. All this going on within the city. Now, as you look to the description of G what Jesus says here of himself, look what it says. The words of the Son of God. Not the fortune-telling oracle. Not, not the one who gives what he, they believe some oracles from heaven but the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Christ is describing himself here to this church that he is the Son of God and with it he carries his own authority, God's authority. His words, not the oracle, but his words carry God's authority. Just like we said before, every description at the beginning of each letter to the seven churches is taken from John's revelation in chapter 1. 
And same with here. The words of the Son of God. But what, you, what I want you to notice, if you have your Bibles, if you look in chapter 1, verse 13, John sees someone, but it says he looks like the Son of Man with feet of bronze. And there's a change here. And Jesus is describing himself not as the Son of Man as he did in chapter 1 to John, but he's changing and he says the Son of God. Both the pictures of his deity, but why make the change? Why switch the wording out? Why go from Son of Man, Daniel 7, still talking about deity, to the Son of God? <clears throat> Why the switch? Because the God of Thyatira, Apollos, was also known as the son of Zeus. The Zeus, the, the, the Savior ruler of all the gods on Mount Olympus. The, the emperors were also known as the sons of Zeus. And now Jesus stands in, in stark contrast to the pagan gods, to, to the sun, to, to Apollo, to the emperors as the true God, the true son of God, not the lifeless idols. And, and Jesus alone is saying, listen, I am God himself. I am the true son, co-equal, co-eternal of the same nature. As God, our creator, not the measly, pathetic pseudo gods that you all worship, but the eternal and majestic son of God. As I was thinking this week. What description would Jesus contrast himself to us today? What sort of pseudo God would he want to destroy as he reveals himself to the church today? As I thought about that, I, I, I said, my, I said I probably should have brought this up last week because last week, you remember, he had this sword coming out of his mouth and we, we're in this postmodern culture where there's no truth. Whatever you think for yourself is true. And here Jesus is, is coming with this sword of truth and of judgment. Maybe, maybe he'd reveal himself that way. Or maybe he'd reveal himself as he continues here. Maybe he'd reveal himself as the one whose eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Again, from chapter 1. Eyes of fire, a flame of fire, point to the purity and this, this searching gaze of King Jesus who, who, who from nothing escapes his view. Penetrating power and vision into the soul, into the heart of man. His holy presence, nothing can be hidden. His eyes of fire, a burning indignation, judgment to all that he sees. And these, these flaming eyes also dispel darkness and burn Away impurities. That's Jesus' eyes. The words burnished bronze describes his feet. It's an alloy of material that would be polished and, and would, would shine brightly. Probably alluding to the bronze work done in that city. Famous for bronze. But it, it compares, doesn't compare at all to the bronze feet of Jesus. The blazing fire. Talking about splendor and strength and power and authority and judgment. He is brilliant in appearance, unrivaled in strength, utterly glorious as a judge. His, his omniscient laser vision penetrates everything, perceives all things, consumes every opposition, tears down barriers, and is invincible in its power. That's Jesus. If that introduction of Christ in chapter 
2, verse 18 doesn't make you sit up straight. Nothing will. Because nothing's changed. That's Jesus today in glory. That's Jesus today speaking to us through his word. That is Jesus today, the son of God, in all authority and judgment, penetrating power, all knowledge, standing before us today. Let that sit in. Let that sink in. Eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet like burning bronze. Look at the approval, verse 19. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, patience, endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. I know your deeds, Jesus says. I know your deeds. I know your actions. I know your godly efforts. I I know your love, agape love. I know your sacrificial love. Jesus is thoroughly acquainted with the labors of love that believers have shown in the city of Thyatira, both to God and to neighbors. This church, unlike the Ephesian church, whose love had grown cold, their love has not grown cold. In fact, their faith led them to face problems in a pagan environment to show love. And look what it says, service. Your works, your love, and faith, trusting in God, trusting in the Lord, faith, trust, and service. Where we get our word deacon from. The servants caring for and serving one another. And look what it also says, and patience, endurance. <laughs> Everyone I've ever met, anyone I've ever met who loves to serve people has to have the gift of patience. Right? If not, you're going to lose your witness really quick. As you know, people, myself included, could be very impatient and difficult to serve. My wife's at home watching right now, shaking her head, I am sure. I know that. I know that about you. You're doing good things. You're growing in good deeds. Look what it says. Even greater extent. And that your latter works exceed the first. You're moving, you're growing, you're maturing, you're progressing for things of of Jesus, for the gospel. They were standing still, not standing still, they were pressing on. And Jesus says, I'm pleased. I'm pleased with your love. I'm pleased with your faith, your actions, your godly efforts, your love. let Let me state the obvious here. Before Jesus goes on and rebukes the church... He knows and acknowledges the good in the church. He does it in other churches as well in these letters. So even though he has to deal with serious problems, he's saying there's some good things. And that's a lesson I think all of us can learn, right? When we have to deal with serious problems, when we are faced with difficult decisions, we have to deal with with people whom we love and care, let's remember the good that is happening. Jesus is encouraging the church. They have problems, but those problems don't keep Jesus from seeing and commending their actions. What is also interesting here in verse 19, I just want to point this out in love as well, is there's no real mention in the church, in this letter, of doctrinal soundness that you find in other, other letters. You, you see he says faith, but that's about, that's about as far as, as it goes. 
And I think there's a contrast here. For in the church of Ephesus, their love for Christ had gone cold, yet their love for truth was vibrant. In Thyatira, their love for Christ had remained vibrant, but their love for truth had gone cold. Ephesus lacked love. Thyatira lacked truth. Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. And family, that's hard to maintain, right? I mean, it's hard to maintain speaking truth and speaking love. Sometimes we just lean on the mercy and the love side. We just, there are people that just want to just see the best in everybody. And then there are those who want to clamp down and judge and, and, and point out every single thing in their life. And it's hard for us to maintain that balance of love and truth. But I think as a church, if we could keep pressing in and pressing in and pressing in the gospel, we can do both. We could be vibrant in love if we relish the reality of Christ, his love and forgiveness, rehearsing and remembering the gospel, how repulsive our sin is to God, yet his mercy and his love forgives us of all our sins. And now because of the gospel, we are eternally secure in his love. We are wonderfully accepted into his family. We are precious in his sight. And that should propel us, the Bible says, into love and good deeds. But the gospel is also a call to truth. To truth. And the gospel calls us not only to to hear the truth, but to respond to truth. Even when the truth is hard to hear. You see, when we are secure in our identity in Christ, when we are secured in his love and his grace and his mercy, we are able to hear the truth. Because it doesn't change who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't change the fact that we've been wonderfully accepted, wonderfully loved, totally forgiven. God is not for us, we could say. God is not, God is not against us, I should say, but God is for us working for his glory, our good, even when we need to hear hard stuff. Gospel truth, gospel reality will make us be people who love others and yet we'll be able to speak the truth in love. You have the author, you have the approval. Now look at the ailment, verse 20. But I have this against you. I love you, church of Thyatira, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel She calls herself a prophetess. She's teaching and seducing, look what it says, my servants to practice sexual morality, to eat food, sacrifice to to, to idols. Jezebel. There's a reason that no one in this, watching online or here in this field, named their daughter Jezebel. There's a reason. Or Judas. Right? Benedict Arnold, I don't know. There's some of the names you just stay away from. Jezebel's one of them. Someone once said, we name our sons David and Paul, our daughters Mary and Rachel, we name our dogs Goliath and Nero, and we name our cats Jezebel. All you cat lovers out there. I don't think that's her real name. I think she's a literal woman. You know, she's literally, you know, talking about someone who's really was there who claimed to be a prophetess, who took some form of leadership in the church, And others sat idly by. We don't know her name, but we know who she embodied. We know who she symbolized. Jezebel, the wicked Phoenician princess in the Old Testament, 1 and 2 Kings, married King Ahab, led the Israelites into idolatrous worship, the the infamous daughter of 
Ethbal, uh, 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 the king of Sidon, a Baal worshiper. And after she married Ahab, the king of Israel, she set up false worship, Baal worship in Israel, ended in disaster. The priest was sexually immoral, corrupt. Just look at the end of her life. She gets murdered and gets eaten by dogs. That'll tell you about her life right there. This woman appears to be somewhat or at least allowed to be in a place of authority, a place that she does not belong. And she calls herself a prophetess, one who speaks for God. She's persuading the church to engage in illicit relationships. She's, she's, she's engaging and, and calling people and, and, and leading people into temple worship and to idolatry. So even though they're growing in their faith, their love, they're tolerating evil teaching. That's scary. Chuck Swindoll. She was cleverly deceptive, manipulatively dominant, viciously scheming, and influentially, influentially wicked, end quote. Now, there's a gift of prophecy in the New Testament. You read about it in 1 Corinthians 14. And, and there's actually a place there where women are prophesying. The problem, though, I think that we find here is not only what she's teaching, but she has this unbridled authority in the church. It is obvious from the text that a church can be a loving church, a serving church, but now there's something wicked being taught. There's leadership that is taking advantage of God's people. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says that idols aren't really gods and eating meat purchased at the shrine of idols in a store or in, 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 in some other place is not inherently evil. But those who practice the worship of false idols, those who practice sexual morality in these temples must stop. And Jezebel is a case in point. That's exactly what was going on. And many cults established themselves with false prophets. We've seen it all in our own lives and in and in. For, for thousands of years, fake prophets. I think of the 12 tribes, Eugene Spriggs, their prophet. And they come with this seducing teaching and leading God's people and leading people astray. But fake and false prophets cannot and will not fool the eyes of the ones who has a flame of fire. And when someone says they have direct revelation from God and even hint that that revelation is on par with Scripture, one thing to do. You know it. I say it all the time. Run, Forrest, run. Right? We trust Jesus. We have his word to tell us the truth. And all of what is being said must be measured against God's word. So this Jezebel, most likely, is encouraging the church to stay involved and stay connected to the civil practices of that city. To go right ahead, we talked about it earlier about emulating the culture. We don't emulate, we don't escape, we engage the culture for the cause of Christ. This Jezebel is saying, listen, you have to care for your family. Go to the temples, worship false idols, involve yourself with sexual immorality. This is given to me by God. And it says that you tolerate her. I mean, what was the church doing? What were the leaders doing? What were the pastor elders doing? 1 Corinthians 14 says if someone prophesies, they still have to be under the leadership of the pastor elders that God has raised up. Here's a church abounding, increasing in deeds, but tolerant of false teaching. But notice verse 21. 
Notice the mercy and the grace of God to this Jezebel. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. I gave her time to turn from her sin. I've been patient with her. There's a time and a moment. It was a call to Jesus, but she refuses to come. The Savior's judgment and discipline here is wrapped in grace, love, and mercy. Romans 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you and me to repentance? Turn, repent, change your mind, change your actions, change your, 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 your direction. And those who are followers of Christ, when they're called to the truth, will repent of sin. Those who just buckle, buckle down and bunker down in their sin is really showing where their heart is at. How do you, how do I, how do we deal with sin when we are confronted with sin? Whether it's by a brother or a sister, a wife or a husband, a message you hear. Are we willing to, be, to have broken hearts before God? Are we willing, knowing we are secure in the gospel, to confess and repent of our sins? Are we willing to do that? I hope we are. I hope we could be a humble people who are walking humbly before God, who are willing and, 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 and asking God for repentive hearts. We have the author, the approval, the ailment. Look at the announcement, verse 22. Jesus just says, I will. <laughs> she refuses to repent, so I will, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead, and all the church will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts, and I'll give to each of you according to your works. Now, that is an alarming statement. She wants to be in bed, I'll keep her in bed. She wants to practice sexual morality, I'll keep her in bed, on a sickbed. Some affliction to teach her to rebel against God. And he says, I'll throw those who commit adultery with her into a great tribulation unless, mark that, same grace, mercy shown to them, unless they repent of their deeds. In other words, I've given her a chance. Judgment's coming. You're going to follow her? I'm giving you a chance. Repent of your deeds. And I, when I see this word adultery, it's not just sexual immorality. It's not just sex outside a covenant marriage. But I also see it as spiritual adultery. Jesus announcing judgment. He's stating to those who sin with Jezebel, who violate the covenant God made with them, that they will be judged unless they repent. He's showing mace, grace excuse me, and mercy. He says, it's time. The clock is ticking. If you want to join her, you're going to get tribulation. But don't. Turn. Repent. But I will strike her. Look what he says. I will strike her children dead. I, his children doesn't mean this to her physical, biological children. Children here means those who follow her pattern. Those disciples of hers. Those who follow her description. I, I will throw them. I will strike them. George Ladd in his commentary says this. The text, what we just read, distinguishes between those who join in adultery with the prophetess and those who are called her children. 
The punishment of the latter is much more severe than the former, death. Apparently, John intends us to distinguish between those who are still struggling with the problem of how to be loyal to Christ and those who are unreservedly committed themselves to the teaching of this false prophetess, end quote. A time to repent. And then there's no time to repent. And look what Jesus says, that all the churches will know. All the church will know that I am he, the one who's bringing this distress and affliction upon Jezebel. He searches the hearts. He searches the mind. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Continuing evaluation of the thoughts, the affections, the minds of the church. And then those will reap what they sow. The Lord promised to pay each according to his deeds. People, and I mean us, me, can be manipulators. You're welcome. Just shake your head. Yeah. Sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. But Christ sees the heart. That may scare some of you. I hope it doesn't. I hope, I hope you have enough faith in Christ that you trusted in the cross. That you know what? He sees my heart and he forgives me anyway. But God sees it. Your, your neighbor may not see it. The person you're next to may not see it. But God sees the heart. And he knows those who have trusted him. Those who are resting on him. Those who believe in him. So you have the author. You have the approval. The ailment. The announcement. And the admonition. Verse 24. But to the rest of you. The rest of you who do not hold to this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay any other burden on you. You see what's happening? There, there are those who are joining Jezebel. There is Jezebel herself. There are jo- those who, who are weak or being pushed into or, or being led into sin. And then there are those on the sidelines who, who, who it says, I'm not laying anything on you. Uh, you you're, 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 not, you're holding to my teaching. And I'm thinking, I'm glad I don't have to make that determination, but God sees the heart and he knows where you are. And when he says the deep things of Satan, I don't think there's someone in the church saying, listen, gather together. I have the deep things of Satan I want to share with you. I think there's a little hyperbole, a little sarcasm. They're they're, they're going around talking about the deep things of God, but what they really are, Jesus is saying, is the deep things of Satan. They're not from me. Change the gospel. Spreading doctrines of demons and wisdom of Satan when you change the gospel. But notice Jesus does acknowledge there's burdens on them. I do not lay any burden on you. What burden do you think he's talking about? You could talk about this in community group this week. What burden? I don't lay any burden on you. Is it, is it the burden of, of dealing with Jezebel? Is it the burden of, of being... Um, Led into sin. I think it's the burden of dealing with her. I think, I think Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not going to lay any other burden upon you, but leaders, church, folks, listen, do something. You can't just sit around and allow this to continue to take place. But hold fast, verse 25. In the midst of that, in the midst of not laying extra burdens, I need you to hold fast, Jesus says. That's a command. I'm coming soon. Continue to be faithful, hold fast, resist the teaching. 
Put her out. Stop believing falsehood. This is not a minor admonition. It's not a minor warning. I, I, think, I think it's important that we hear this morning that we need to hold fast, that there, there is this tendency of, of believers. That's why we're gathered together. Why it's important to gather and hear God's word is there's a tendency of the human heart to drift away. And Jesus is saying, don't drift. Hold fast. Hold fast. Now, when I say that, I want to be really clear. Holding fast to Christ as he will hold me fast is because Christ is holding us. That when Jesus commands the church, when Jesus commands his children to hold fast, it in no way changes the truth of our eternal security. The verb to save is in scripture both past salvation of of Christ choosing us before the foundations of the world, present salvation as we experience it in time and place, and also future salvation as we look to the future glory that we will be with him. And scripture speaks of both God's preserving grace, his power, his grip on our lives, that we are to live by the power of his Holy Spirit, and the ability that he gives us to press on, to make good choices, right decisions, to stay in the word, to stay in fellowship, to to be involved in a community. R.C. Sproul, even the regenerated person with a liberated will is still vulnerable to sin and temptation. And the residual power of sin is so strong that without the aid of grace, the believer would in all probability fall away. But God's decree is immutable. His sovereign purpose to save his elect from the foundation of the world is not frustrated by our weaknesses. We talk about this. Remember the two tracks of Scripture. God is sovereign. A man is responsible. And those two tracks, what scripture runs along. And we have to remember that. Paul gives this assurance to the Philippian church. I'm sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? He's saying, hold fast. There is a burden on you. Deal with what I'm telling you. But hold fast. Cling to me. Cling to me until I come. And now finally the assurance, verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. Now now notice, if you don't notice it, let me just point it out. All the other letters, it begins with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now Jesus flips it. He's going to say that at the end of every letter now, moving forward. So that when we get to the letter, the seventh letter, and the last words to the seven churches will be, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says as you go into eternity. At least least until he comes back and all the churches will hear and obey and respond to the letters. The Spirit enables us. And what does Jesus say here? To the conquerors. He says it every time. Those who remain faithful, continuously faithful, they are to do what? Look what it says. Keep my works to the end. Remember Jezebel, verse 22? Those who do her works are in trouble. But Jesus says here, in contrast, do my works to the end. Do my works until I come. Matthew 24, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And and that's what Jesus is, is charging the church. He's saying to the church, to the one who conquers, excuse me, to the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, keeps doing what they need to do.
to meet following and abiding and resting in Christ. Daily walking with him each and every day. Resting in his power. Resting in his strength. I think of Philippians. Philippians 4.13 has got to be one of the most taken out of context verse in the entire Bible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? As if they're going to call me in a delicate surgery at Albany Med because I'm claiming this verse. But this verse applies here. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can hold fast to the end. I can continue to press on and do the will and the works of God to the end because he will strengthen me. I will be strengthened. I can do all those things through Christ who gives me strength. All people at all times can hold fast because of that promise. Now, we're going to close with the two last things he gives the promise. Uh, he gives the assurance. And that is his shared authority and his personal preference. Number one, look at 26b. To those who overcome, I will give him authority over the nations. Verse 27. And he will rule them with an rod of iron. And when earth and pots are broken in pieces, even I, as I myself have received authority from my father. Now, those verses come from Psalm 2. And, and Psalm 2 is, is a psalm where the father is given all authority to the son. And now Jesus, this is incredible, is promising the one who conquers, the one who holds fast, the one who continues to the end, that they will rule with him. Dealing with lawsuits, Paul writes to the church of Corinth, Do you not know the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to to try trivial cases? Don't you know that we are to judge angels? Early in chapter 1, verse 6 of Revelation, we're called a kingdom. Here we are told we will share in Christ's kingly reign. The rod, the iron rod symbolizes judgment. And the Messiah is saying from Psalm 2, applying it here, that you will reign and rule with me. So for us who hold to a premillennial reign, a thousand year reign, I know I'm going to get some people fired up. That's okay. That thousand year reign is when this prophecy comes to be. If you don't believe that, that's okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to you guys later. So we will rule with Jesus in the future if we stay present and faithful to him in the present. What an incredible future. Shared authority with Christ. He sets up his kingdom. And look at the second thing he says. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. There are a couple of possible interpretations of this passage. Some see the morning star uh, from Numbers 24, Luke 1, 7, 8, the coming of Jesus in the term of the sunrise. Others see a connection between Numbers where Balaam prophesies a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel, speaks of, of Christ's reign, his loyalty, excuse me, his royalty, and that we will share in that royalty, we will share in that kingly rule. I'm not quite sure if that's the answer. Because in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, it says this. I, Jesus, the end of Revelation, five verses before the close of the book, 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I will give them the morning star. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying at the end of those who remain faithful, he will give himself to us. 
It's Jesus. It is Jesus, the star himself. When, when the end comes, we get Jesus. If you're among the faithful, I will give you the kingdom and you will have the king. That is to say that all God has his kingdom and the king is ours. Here's something interesting and I'll close and we'll go to communion. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, Satan is called Lucifer, which means bright star. The tolerating people in Thyatira were following the deep things of Satan, which would lead to darkness and death. God's conquerors, overcomers, on the other hand, will share the true bright morning star. Follow the deep things of Satan, you get a fallen star, hold fast, and follow the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will share with you in his victory, and he will give himself, the morning star, to his people. That's the promise. That's the promise for those who are conquerors. That's the promise to those who hold fast. That's the problem to you and to me this morning. No matter what happens in this life, we have that promise of God himself. And our Lord promised himself in all his fullness and glory to us. What better and greater hope can the people of God have than this Jesus making this promise to his people? Do you know him this morning? Is there things in your life that we're talking about tolerating sin in your life where God is calling you to repentance? God knows your heart. I don't. But we're going to have a time. Ricky, Pastor Ricky is going to come and lead us with music. If you picked up a communion cup, the, the wafer's on top. We're going to have time. Ricky's going to sing. And I, I'm going to call the church to repentance. I'm going to call myself to repentance, to search my heart, to allow the light of Christ, to, his, his eyes, the flaming fire to, to penetrate my soul, to show me things in my life that I need to repent and turn from. And then celebrate. Celebrate God's forgiveness. Celebrate the Lord's work on the cross. Celebrate his atonement, his perfect atonement, dying in our place for our sins as he went to the cross for our sins, died and rose again and will ascend and has ascended and will come again. What is God talking to you about this morning? Do you know him? That's the first question. If you don't know him, you need to know you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And our sin has separated us from a holy God. And God created us to be in fellowship with him, to love him, to worship him. But sin separated us. And we've all went our own way, our own lords and saviors. And we've all done our own things. And now Jesus is calling us back to come home. Come to the God who created you. Repent, turn from your sin, being your own Lord, your own savior, and trust him. Trust his work on the cross. Trust that he died, the Lord Jesus, in your place for your sins. Bore the wrath that you deserve upon himself and then was buried and three days later rose from the dead. And his resurrection from the dead says that the atonement was accepted. Full forgiveness is offered to those who come to him. Trust Christ today. Take communion today. Knowing that Christ died, knowing that he rose from the dead. Let's spend some time confessing repenting, and then celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Ricky's going to come on up and lead us. When you're ready, during this song, partake of the bread and the cup. Father, this, 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 this picture of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, can be, to some, terrifying. For those who don't know you. So God, we just pray right now, 
And we just pray that those who don't know you will come to know you by the work of your grace, by the work of your spirit. And we pray as a church family, especially with all the things going on. I know for myself, some anger and, and, and some difficulties have come into my life. God, I pray and we pray that, Lord, you would reveal to us our sin, that we would be able to confess and repent and enjoy the sweet fellowship and celebration of, of, of all that you've done in the gospel. As we take of this bread, uh, we remember his body that was broken. As we drink of the cup, we remember the blood that was shed. And that, Father, that we may um, be filled with your spirit, walk in step with you, holding fast to the truth of the gospel until your return or until we leave this place and go to you. So we love you, and we look forward to what you're going to do as we worship together in the partaking of communion. In Jesus' good name, amen.